Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're tackling book 24 in the Fighting Fantasy series, The Legendary Creature of Havoc. Before we get into that, I have the delightful duty of thanking three new patrons, kind souls who support me with their hard-earned cash. Neil, Ben and Mystic Mog, thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to help me make the podcast and receive a few tokens of my appreciation in the form of my gamebook and my silly D&D retro hack, then you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Um, I've just put a post up there recently outlining some future patron rewards that I'm working on. There's always fresh nonsense brewing in my head. Now on with the show. Creature of Havoc sets out its stall on the back cover. Are you ready for the most unusual fighting fantasy adventure yet, it muses, in eye-catching yellow letters. Today, at the age of 42, I am more than ready. But when I first came across this one as a youngster, I was very confused by it, because it ignored so many of the conventions of fantasy adventure fiction, and I was nothing if not in love with the classic genre tropes. Creature of Havoc turns those tropes on their head and gives you a story from the perspective of not some brave, if morally flexible, hero, but rather from the perspective of a monster. It was written by Steve Jackson, always the more formally daring of the original partnership, whose resume already included space travel, superhero stories and horror books by the time he got to this one. I am very excited to be playing Creature of Havoc and I hope you will enjoy listening to it. The book was released in 1986 with a wonderfully unsettling cover by one of my favourite artists of the period, Ian Miller. The illustrations throughout are by Alan Langford, who is very much a safe pair of hands, having worked on Island of the Lizard King and Sword of the Samurai previously. Without any further ado, let's dive in. Actually, there's going to be some more ado because I need to explain how the book works, and there's good news and bad news for fans of my own personal fighting fantasy tropes. The bad news is that our protagonist is nameless and an amnesiac, so I don't get to choose an appropriately heroic name. There's also no provisions, which is sure to be upsetting to fans of that peculiar running joke where I claim to be healing my wounds by liberal applications of Cornish pasty and crisps. What can I say? I'm sorry. The good news is that we're in familiar fighting fantasy territory with a classic skill, stamina and luck all present and correct. No additional stats, no extra systems, that makes me quite happy. I love seeing people work within that original rule set. There is one small change to the combat rules, which is that being a creature of havoc, you are unusually deadly. If you roll a double when rolling for your attack strength in combat, you instantly kill your opponent. That's a lovely way of selling your physical deadliness, although I guess that aura of menace could be undercut if you roll badly for your skill, for instance. On the flip side to that, it gives characters with a bad skill a little bit more of a fighting chance, which is also nice. It'll be interesting to see where the skill curve lands with this addition. Will the fights tend to the more challenging because you've got this additional attack? Or will Jackson keep them quite simple to further reinforce the fantasy of being a monstrous dealer of death? I guess we will find out. I cannot remember from the first time I played it. My character has a skill of 10, a stamina of 23, and a luck of 10. I did my usual semi-honest thing of rolling until I got a character 
with better than average stats. So skill and luck here are at the low end of that, while the stamina is almost the maximum of 24. Now at this stage I would normally read the background material, but in the case of Creature of Havoc the background is so extensive that it would take forever, especially with me needing to interject on a regular basis to differentiate what I'm doing from an audiobook. There's lots of information, but it can all be more or less boiled down to the idea that an evil wizard and mining magnate, the only thing more evil than a wizard, Zaradan Mar is looking for a hidden elven village. He's after their vapours, mystic energies that the queens of the elves give birth to after ascending to the throne. He's got a big flying ship to help him and everyone is understandably nervous at the thought of an absolute maniac who already knows the secrets of Frankensteining monsters together, getting his hands on even more power. So with all of that said, let's dive straight into the first paragraph of Creature of Havoc. So there is an illustration on the very first page and fans of fighting fantasy bingo can check off a square for certain because it appears to be a nicely rendered image of an old man who looks like he might be a bit mad. So fans of fighting fantasy mad old men, you're in for a treat, I'm sure. It's a very solid illustration, very Alan Langford. I really like it. Oh, there are also three rats. They are also nice. The pain is unbearable. Summoning up all your energy, you open your eyes. First one, then the other. They narrow to slits as they adjust themselves to the strain of trying to see once more, then relax as they make out familiar shapes in the dim light. A dirt floor, rocky walls. Then the pain takes over again. Your head rocks. Your eyes submit and close tightly in an agonised grimace. Instinctively, you raise your hands to cup your face, and a low moan mingles with the rasping sound as your rough fingers rub the scaly skin above your eyes. So, something terrible has happened, or we've been out on the lash to an unreasonable degree. It's not that uncommon for me to wake up feeling like that, I have to say. Combination of injudicious alcohol use and being past 35 tends to make waking up a bit of a nightmare. After some time, the pain begins to ease. You open your eyes once more and peer out from between your gnarled fingers. You seem to be at the dead end of a passageway. Your surroundings are barely visible, but a dull glow is coming from the northern extent of the passageway, which stretches before you. A sound is also coming from this direction, of irregular breathing. Something alive is up there. You heave your great, bulky body to its feet. Along your back, the spines bristle. Swinging your heavy head slowly from side to side, your progress is decided. Northwards is the only option open to you. Lovely description. Really puts you in that moment of waking up and finding out that you're not what you thought you were. Muscles strain and succeed in raising a lumbering foot which thuds down loudly on the ground in front of you. You repeat the action, first with one foot, then the other. After four steps, the motion has become automatic. You are moving more quickly and more quietly up the passage. When you reach the end, your eyes are drawn to a huddled shape lying on the ground in front of you. The small figure lies on its side, facing away from you. It's shrouded in a dirty brown cape, tied around its neck, and it lies in a puddle of thick red liquid. 
Its body rises and falls irregularly with each breath. Some unidentified feeling swells within you. Is it anger, hate, fear, curiosity, hunger, or even sympathy? You bend down towards the little creature, uttering a meaningless grunt as you do so. The sound rouses the figure, which rolls slowly over to face you. The creature's dirty face is light-skinned, though barely visible, under the thick hair which shades its closed eyes and almost totally obscures its mouth. From its chin, the hair rolls abundantly down its chest in a grey, unruly mass. Underneath the body, and now exposed by the creature's movement, is a sharp, shiny shaft. This catches your attention. Old man has a shiv. No clothes, well, other than the cape, but a shiv. There's someone with a very different set of priorities to me. As you stand there staring, the creature's eyes flick open. They focus on your bulky shape and a look of terror streaks across the creature's face. In spite of its pain, it fumbles for and grasps the shiny shaft, holding its pointed end out towards you and baring its teeth. The wounded dwarf you have found is evidently in need of help. Okay, so not technically a mad old man. A mad, indeterminately aged dwarf. I still think that counts. What are dwarves in fantasy literature other than a race of old men? So we've got some options. We can show him we mean no harm. We can try to talk to him. We can bring our foot down heavily on his neck. Let's try to talk to him. You greet the dwarf. At least you try to greet the little creature. But instead of any message coming from your throat, it is silent, and your hands reach down to grasp the terrified figure around the chest. He screams and makes a strange sound, which sounds like... That is the best I can do. It is nonsense gibberish. By If we're being strictly accurate. You try and answer, but the only sound you are able to make is a grunt of effort as your rough, scaly fingers close tightly around the creature's chest and your sharp claws dig in. Summoning up all its strength, it swipes at you with its sharp sword. The blade digs in under the scales above your knee, but the wound is not too serious. Lose two stamina points. Stamina now 21. The blow causes you to roar loudly and increase the pressure on the creature's chest. Its ribs crack like twigs under the force of your grip, and the body falls limp. You drop it to the floor, where it lands like the sack of bones it now is. Your thoughts are confused. Will you attempt to hide the body? Will you examine this strange little creature, or will you leave the area immediately? Hiding the body seems futile. Leaving the area might be the most sensible thing to do, but I am nothing if not incorrigibly curious, so I am going to examine the creature. Your hands relax, and the sharp claws retract into your fingers. You clumsily fumble through the dwarf's dirty vestments. Your fingers will not fit into the pockets, but you do succeed in snapping the thongs of a large leather pouch which the creature has around its waist. As the ties break, the pouch spills its contents on the ground in front of you. Contained several circular pieces of shiny metal and a piece of hide which unfolds as it drops out of the pouch. It is light in colour and has markings all over one side. You pick it up awkwardly and look at it, but it makes no sense at all. So clearly a, a piece of parchment with something written on it that we can't understand. That's very good. It's so important if you're going to do this kind of story to nail the parameters of this creature early doors, and he's done a really good job of that. You become quite fascinated 
by this piece of leather. You turn it round, rub it with your hands and throw it in the air. You place it on your arm and on your head. You decide to take the leather with you. Unknown to you, the message on the hide may be useful later in your adventure. So you can turn to a particular paragraph to examine the message. So uh, let's do that now. And we can go back to this paragraph at any time should we wish. Oh no. So um, the parchment has writing on it, but it is not in any recognisable language. Am I going to try and read out the whole message? It's quite long. Yes, I am. Swizhnefabud apfo yurp yapuva ebfna fabuf nugudvaj liti pfot Vlub Nadamb Lij Sibrufas Ub. You get the idea. Um, there's a bit of it that's written in italics, and there's a bit of it that's written in capital letters, and there's some additional writing in a different style, which has some additional characters like slashes and dashes and equal signs in. So that is very mysterious. I do like a mystery. If I was really committed to the bit, I'd have read the whole thing, but I'm not. So we continue. As you may have realised by now, your own wishes have little effect on your reactions as a creature. You have only glimpses of what you are like and what you are capable of. Although this will change as the adventure progresses, at this stage you are at the mercy of your own whims and instincts. That's not much different to being me. You are standing at a junction where you may go either east or west. And it's on a d6 roll, straight 50-50. So we are going, let's hope we go, I mean, I assume we're facing north. So we will hope for west. So we do like to go left if we can. Yep, I think that is west. That is a, a four. So yeah, that is west. Oh no, no, apparently. You decide to follow the passage east to your right. Boo hiss. Your first steps slow as you take in the encounter with the dwarf. After a few paces, the corridor turns north. You approach a stout wooden door and must make a decision. Will you smash the door from its hinges and continue, or will you give up on this route and return to the dwarf's corpse? And again, it's a d6 roll. The options are 1 to 2 or 3 to 6. 1. You shift your weight and turn your great bulk around. With laboured steps, you stomp back the way you came and pass the lifeless body. I really wanted to know what was behind that door as well. You travel west along a twisting passageway. Several times you bump clumsily into the walls and grunt in annoyance, but your tough scales protect you from damage. The temperature drops noticeably, and each breath sends steamy snorts from your nostrils. After narrowing slightly, the passage widens as it leads towards a chamber. A sound from ahead and a flickering light warn you to take care. But rather than making you stop to listen, the prospect of an encounter seems to excite you. You bare your teeth and your claws and stride forwards into the chamber. I'm hoping that this randomising our own behaviour thing doesn't go on for too long. It's sort of fine at the moment, but I would quite like to be able to make some decisions at some point. Roaring like an enraged demon, you rush into the open chamber, ready to take on whatever is inside. Terrified shrieks come from the small party of adventurers huddled round a makeshift campfire in the centre of the area. Three figures are warming themselves by the fire. One wears shiny clothes that clink as he moves. Another is dressed in red and also grows long dark hair from his chin. 
The third is a tiny creature with polished hide on his chest. He has no hair on his chin, but plenty on his feet, which he's been holding up to warm at the fire. Your eyes fix on the smallest of the three. Your breathing gets heavier, and a feeling of pure hatred grips you. Without hesitating, you stomp across and grab the miserable hobbit with your claws. The other two are caught off balance and are slow to react. The hobbit has no weapon and should be an easy victim. So... Uh, that's cool. We found an adventuring party. We're going to try and murder an adventuring party. Steve Jackson apparently hates hobbits. Bit harsh, but hey, they are a uh, an everyman trope that has dated relatively badly, even, I guess, by the, uh, the mid-80s. So I can see where he's coming from. I quite like a hobbit. Anyway, the uh, hobbit has a skill of five and a stamina of six, so I imagine this will be brief. For the first time in Creature of Havoc, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Hobbit, uh, finishing him off with a nice critical hit, so that was fun. Nice to see that mechanic in action. If I'd taken more than three rounds to defeat the Hobbit, something would have happened, but as it happens, I did it in exactly three rounds, so that determines what happens next. As the creature dies, you sink your teeth into its arm and taste the juicy flesh. But then you remember the other two adventurers. The red-robed figure is facing you, pointing the little finger of each hand at you and mumbling. The shiny human has grabbed a sword, similar, you remember, to the dwarves, but it's larger, and he's shouting to the other, Kaptraplavot! Smindibivdiger! Jetumoy Dritchkavlik Vizoo! Taplovt of Bloodvert Kerr! Don't think uh, Steve Jackson was anticipating a lunatic reading his adventure gamebook out loud, and why would he? You cannot fight both of them at once. Which will you direct your attention to? Uh, so we test our luck. I feel like luck's been an underused um, stat in uh, later Fighting Fantasy books. Six, that's easily under my luck. Luck reduced from ten to nine. Hopefully this means I get to go for the, uh, the spellcaster first. Always, always hit the squishy ones. Your reaction is immediate. The red-robed human is deep in thought and looks an easy target. You step forward and swipe viciously at him with your claws. He screams and falls to the ground, clutching at his face. You look down at the undefended wretch and prepare to deliver the death blow. At that moment, you feel a terrible sting in the back, which causes you to bellow and swing round. The remaining adventurer has plunged at you with his sword and succeeded in piercing the scales and flesh on your back. You must lose two stamina points for the wound. Then you can face the knight in plate armour. So, the Armoured Knight has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. There's no special conditions. I need to reduce my stamina to 19. And, yeah, for the second time in as many minutes, it feels like, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Knight without taking any additional damage, so my stamina remains on 19. Yeah, I did him with another death blow just before the end as well, so that was cool. This is doing a very good job of selling me on the idea that I am genuinely significantly more dangerous than most of the things that are around me. So we get to turn to a new paragraph. Oh, I should note that the uh, the book is considerably longer than the standard uh, fighting fantasy length. There's a 460 paragraphs rather than the traditional 400. So uh, that shows the ambition, I think, that's on display here. You deliver the death blow and the knight drops to the ground. With the danger now over, your thoughts turn to food. The smell of the steel-worn hobbit reaches your nostrils and your mouth begins to water. You snatch the creature in one hand and eagerly sink your teeth into its sweet flesh. I literally bit my tongue. 
as I was saying that, a bit ironic, but this will merely provide a snack for you. Inside his armour the knight is an impossible meal, but the red-robed wizard groaning on the floor may be a new taste for you to savour. You silence his miserable whimpers with a single deadly slash from your claws. For the tasty meal you may restore your stamina to its initial level. So back to 23. After you have eaten you rummage through the adventurer's belongings. Their packs have little to interest you. The hobbit carried a miniature sword, and you find a rolled-up piece of thin parchment in the wizard's robe. All three humans carried odd-shaped lumps of a doughy substance. Perhaps food? Although it smells of nothing to you. They all also have small hide pouches containing round, flat objects of shiny metal. You cannot think what these might be for, so you toss them aside. You must now continue your journey. Passages lead off from the chambers of the north, east and west. You decide to take the passageway to the west. You leave the chamber, your way ahead lit by the flickering fire. Eventually the fire's light becomes too distant to help, and you are groping your way in pitch blackness. Suddenly a high-pitched twittering sound comes from above you, followed by others. You have disturbed a group of flying creatures which are now squeaking in alarm as they dart around you. You swipe at them blindly, and catch one or two of them as they dive at you and scratch with their sharp claws. But your scales protect you from any serious harm and you are soon further along the passage where these creatures evidently do not venture. The passage turns north. You follow it around the bend to the right and stop in front of a wooden door. There is no other way forward. Will you heave at the door with your shoulder or is there something else you wish to do? And once again we are rolling for it. Okay, it's a 1 to 2 slash 3 to 6 decision. I got a 6, so we're taking the latter one. Hopefully, battering down a door. The door cracks under the force of your blow. A hole appears and you rip the timbers away until it is large enough for you to pass through. Torches are mounted on the wall of the room inside, and there are two doors, one to the east and one to the west. There is no furniture to speak of, but some remains, perhaps a table and a chair, litter the floor among a thin covering of dirty straw. The wood has obviously been broken in what appears to have been a furious battle, the result of which lies before you. In the centre of this room is a familiar sight. Casting your mind back to the battle you've just won, you recognise the figure of an armoured knight lying face down in the straw. His face is hidden under an elegant helmet, decorated with wings coming from above each ear. A dark bladed sword has entered his body through a gap in his armour between his arm and shoulder. Next to the knight are three other figures. One is similar in stature, but wears a tough leather jerkin and a helmet. A bloody stain around his belly indicates how this adventurer came to grief. The other two figures are not so familiar. They are shorter than the others and are dressed in armour of scaly brown hide. They have gnarled, pug-nosed faces with vicious teeth set in their lower jaws. All four bodies are long dead. Crawling with adventurers this place. Crawling with them. It'd be quite fun to do in a game book an area where most of the monsters you fight are actually other adventurers and pretty much all of the monsters have been cleared out by them. That would be quite a neat set piece, I think. You step forward to get a better look. Suddenly you hear a chomping sound coming from somewhere in the room. In fact, several places. But you cannot see anything which might make such a noise. Your eyes pass over the adventurer in leather armour and you suddenly freeze. While you are watching, a chunk of flesh disappears from his thigh. You watch incredulously for a few moments more. Not only does more flesh disappear from the adventurer's leg, but you also notice the body of one of the pug-nosed creatures twitch as its forearm suddenly loses a fleshy lump. This scene is worrying and you must decide what to do next. That's a 1 to 3, 4 to 6 roll. Another 6, wasting my 6s. 
just being really profligate with the sixes when I don't need them. You make your way cautiously back towards the door, horrified by the sight of the body's slow disappearance. As you step across one of the pug-nosed creatures, your foot catches something in the air. A screeching noise from somewhere is followed by a yelp of pain from you. The sharp teeth clamp onto your foot. Lose two stamina points. Stamina now down to 21. The shock causes you to tumble over, and this frees your foot. But as you lift yourself up, something is happening in the room. Three shapes are materialising in front of you. There is a nice picture of this scene. As you can see, shapes are like little gargoyle creatures, it would appear. And you can see the dead bodies of the orcs, I guess, and the knight. Yeah, it's a nice evocative little picture. Your eyes widen as three scrawny creatures form before you. They are thin and angular and move in quick, jerky motions. Although their bodies are covered in scraggy, dark fur, their bony faces are bald with tiny eyes. In the centre of each face is an oversized, protruding mouth rimmed with sharp teeth. These vicious little flesh feeders live on carrion. While feeding, they make themselves invisible to avoid being caught unawares. In between meals, they're both visible and quick-tempered. They now face you, furious that their meals have been interrupted, and you must battle with the creatures. They attack together. So we've got three flesh feeders. One is skill six, stamina six. Second skill six, stamina seven. And the third skill six, stamina six. Seems like an easy fight, but regular listeners will know that actually multiple combats, particularly if there's more than two, can be really dangerous, even if the fighters are actually not that skilled. So let's hope for lots of good juicy death blows. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the three flesh feeders. I got one death blow, which feels a little bit underwhelming, particularly given it was one that was like halfway to being dead anyway. And they managed to reduce me to 15 stamina points, so hopefully I can eat them or something. You rest for a few moments to catch your breath, and then you survey the room. Curiosity overcomes you, and you begin to investigate the seven bodies in the room. The pug-faced orcs are dirty and smelly. You try a mouthful of flesh, but spit it out in disgust. Around their waists, they carry small bags, which, when ripped open, send a shower of small bones flying across the room. The two adventurers are not much more interesting. Similar pouches contain those round pieces of shiny metal which you came across before. They scatter on the floor and you ignore them. The pack on the back of the adventurer in the winged helmet is decorated and attracts your attention. One of the straps breaks as you rip it off his back and grope clumsily inside. You feel something solid. As you fumble angrily with the rucksack, a hard wooden casket drops to the ground and falls open. Inside... It's a clear, smooth flask which contains swirling purple gas. Your curiosity is captured, and your huge, clawed hand tries to grasp the delicate flask. But this turns out to be hopeless. Eventually, you pick up the casket and drop it on the ground. As luck would have it, the flask jumps in its cradle and lands in such a way that the stopper flips out of the flask. The purple gas within swirls tempestuously, and its vapours seep slowly from the neck of the flask. So I think this is one of the magic vapours that the elf queens give birth to in a fashion that I think we should not examine too carefully. Not that there's anything disgusting about giving birth in and of itself. I just think that giving birth to magical gas is going to look really weird. So hopefully this vapour will do us some favours and maybe allow us to make some decisions. That would be nice. 
The gas drifts from the flask, but rather than spreading out, it pulls itself together into a purple cloud and billows up before you. You watch, open-mouthed, as a shape begins to form in the cloud and eventually turns into a face, which stares deeply into your eyes. The face is human-like, but thin, with jagged features. The pupils of its eyes are not round, but are instead serpent-like. Its thin-lipped mouth opens and speaks. Bibbly 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 it goes. Bibbly 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 bibbly. That's what it says. Your anger mounts and you swipe at the cloud as your hand passes right through the gas without even disturbing it. The mysterious face blinks slowly and the colour of the cloud flashes momentarily from purple to white, then back to purple again. Then the face disappears and the cloud is sucked down back into its flask. That's a good trick. Once safely inside the flask, the stopper replaces itself in the neck and the bottle settles into its cradle in the wooden casket. An instant later, the casket and its contents have faded to nothing. I mean, it could have faded away first, but it really wanted to show off what it could do, clearly. It's like, yeah, I'm going to fade away, but first, look what I can do. You decide that you've had enough of this room, but you may add two luck points for your find. Luck now back to ten. Will you leave through the door in the west or the door in the east so it looks like the vapor has given us the vapors and that's a good thing because we can now make decisions that's nice you leave the room along a passageway which runs west your thoughts still dwelling on the mysterious smoke creature after a short time you find that the passage is bending this way and that through the rocky earth your progress is aided by the strange blue glowstones which are set into the roof of the passage as you progress, glowstones ahead of you light up and bathe the area in an eerie blue light. When you look behind, you can see that they magically turn themselves off. Suddenly, a distant echo reaches your ears and you stop dead in your tracks. Again, you hear the sound. It is coming closer. Footsteps and muffled voices are heading towards you. You are fortunate in having the advantage that your own footsteps are virtually silent. So you continue along ready for a fight with anything that may come. You approach a bend. So some nice little uh, not in Kansas details there with the blue glowstones. Usually people are trying to get into a dungeon from outside. We're trying to get out of a magical dungeon from the inside. That's great. A shrill scream pierces the air and for an instant you are not sure whether it came from your own throat or that of the terrified adventurer with whom you have suddenly found yourself nose to nose. I'm guessing it's him. You recover quickly and slash furiously at the hapless human who is still trying to compose himself after his fright. You catch him across the skimpy leather armour he wears on his chest and send him crashing into the rocky wall where he loses his grip on the sword he is carrying. His two companions are close behind so you must finish off the strong arm without delay. So strong arms are mercenaries I think. That's what uh, the introduction said. So this strong arm is skill 7, stamina 8. So once again, I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, I have defeated the strong arm. Nibbled him to death the old-fashioned way. Not a single death blow in sight, sadly. But no damage taken, so that's nice. Stamina holding steady at 15. Hopefully, I can defeat the other two. I might get a chance to eat this one. As their leader falls, the other two adventurers rush to attack. One is a female warrior and the other is a thief. Both are carrying shields and both attack you at the same time. But I'm not having a go at Steve Jackson personally. This is all kind of unconscious bias stuff, I'm sure. But it does wind me up when the default is so overwhelmingly male that just 
marking a character as being female is a point of difference. One is a female warrior and the other is a thief of unspecified gender, which means male. We have the warrior and we have the thief. The warrior has a skill of seven, a stamina of seven. The thief has a skill of eight and a stamina of six. So for the second time in as many seconds, it feels like, I'm going to roll yet more dice. Dice are getting a really good workout after the uh, fallow period they had with that Dave Morris that didn't have any random elements at all. Having got no death blows in the previous combat, I actually death blowed both of those at a really early stage in the fight. That was incredibly satisfying, very enjoyable. Love doing the fast-paced murders. So I've defeated both the warrior and the thief. Like the death blow mechanic really does make combat more exciting. Probably the biggest weakness of the fighting fantasy system as it stands is that it's a slow grinding process of dealing damage unless you deliberately set it up so it's not. But the default way of fighting is that you're both standing there gradually trying to whittle each other down. Death blow mechanic by making such a quick disjunction in that normal rhythm really makes it feel more exciting. I don't think it would be appropriate for every book. Probably something I'll talk more about at the end because if you want to have complicated grueling fights, the death blow mechanic, being able to bring those to a sudden halt, that becomes a problem. It limits the kind of fights you can design. But for the kind of story that Steve Jackson's telling, it seems entirely appropriate and it's working a treat. You poke around the bodies of the three dead ruffians. Something shining on the wrist of the third adventurer catches your attention. Clumsily, you rip at the clothing of all three, eventually exposing three objects of interest. The leading adventurer wore around his neck a pendant made of dull, dark metal on a leather thong. The third adventurer wore two wrist bracelets of a shining yellow metal. The other carried a pouch containing twelve small, flat discs of a shiny metal. Which of these is most interesting to you? I think the wrist braces are going to be too small for my sausagey wrists. The discs, I assume, is just money. So I think it's dull metal pendant all the way. You are fascinated by the ugly pendant. You carefully hook the leather thong with a claw and pull it free of the adventurer's head. Maybe I should have just pulled the adventurer's head off. That would have been easier. You turn it over in your hand and you can see that it is circular, with a dull blue stone set in the centre. You stare at the pendant for some time, wondering what to do with it. Then you remember how the adventurer wore it. You are just able to squeeze it over your head, and you carry the pendant proudly around your neck. Oh, I'm a fancy monster now. A pendant has a secret, which will be revealed in due course. If you reach a reference which begins, you cannot see a thing. Deduct the magic number from the reference number you are on at the time, and turn to this new reference. You can add one luck point for the find. Luck is already at maximum. Ah, good, I was hoping for this. Before you finally leave the adventurers, you may decide to feed upon them. If you do, you gain four stamina points. Then you continue. Well, I'm definitely going to feed upon them. My stamina was 14. It is now 18. All is silent as you walk carefully up the passage. Eventually your ears pick up the sound of running water, and the air becomes moist and cool. The sensation would be quite refreshing if it were not for an unpleasant smell, which gets stronger as the sound of the water becomes louder. What could it be? Soon you find yourself on a ledge in the face of a rocky cliff. Looking out, you can see you are high over a vast cavern through which a river flows. 
Leading down from your ledge into the centre of the cavern is a flight of rough-cut stairs. This precarious staircase spans the river, and it is the only way onwards. The thought of descending the stairs is not one that fills you with enthusiasm. The narrow steps have been made for human-sized feet, and your large pads will make your descent awkward. The smell, which was unpleasant before, is now horrendous and seems to be coming from the river itself. Its waters are murky, brown, and the smell of excrement and decay is overpowering. Nevertheless, the only way is downward, so down you must go. So we are testing our luck. Four, well under my luck. The descent is dangerous, and several times you lose your footing and stumble on the slippery steps, but your luck holds out and you finally arrive at the foot of the staircase. The stench of the river is especially foul to your sensitive nostrils, and your eyes search desperately for a way out of the cavern. You discover two openings in the rock face ahead of you. One leads to the west and the other to the north. Do you want to go north or turn west? Well, we've had some good luck with going west, but... My instinct is that the exit will be north, because exits are always in the north. It's just one of those things. Like, if you want to go onwards, you go north. That's how it works. Going north is always going uphill. This might just be my weird psychology. Other people might have a much more reasonable grasp of cardinal directions, but for me, north means onwards, and it means upwards. Ask me how often I get lost. A passage leads from the opening into the rock face, and you follow it. But you find that as you travel north, the light fades rapidly. There are no glowstones in this passage, and you must progress carefully, steadying yourself by running your hands along both walls. The ground underfoot is rocky, and several times you stub your toes painfully on protruding stones. Later, you can no longer touch both walls at once. Although you are unable to see anything, you sense that you are entering a large chamber. Yeah, this isn't the one where our pendant might be helpful. I've just checked and it's definitely not. So this is an example of how trying to be clever clever and go, ah oh, yes, when you see this mysterious sentence then deduct 20 is sort of interesting because it means that only if you found the object will you know that you need to use the object. But an argument could be made for saying, simply asking, have you got the pendant is a fairer way of doing it. Aha! You cannot see a thing. So this is the pendant, I assume. So we go immediately to the new, the new paragraph. We don't bother reading the existing one. As you shuffle around the wall of the cavern, you suddenly notice a strange sensation coming from your neck. The pendant you picked up is beginning to vibrate slightly and is giving out a faint hum. But when you continue around the wall, the vibration fades until the pendant is once more still. You puzzle over this for a few moments and step back to where you were before. Again, the vibrations and humming come from the pendant, and you pause to get a look at what is happening. The dull blue stone set at its centre begins to glow, and you watch in amazement as its colour changes from blue to a living red, as though a fire were burning inside it. An instant later, a single beam of red shoots from the stone to a point in the wall in front of you. Following its direction, you can see what seems to be a piece of rock hanging in midair. As if ordered by the pendant, you grasp the rock and pull. It is not hanging in midair, but is attached to a rope, and your tug is answered by a rumble in the rock in front of you. A doorway is opening. The pendant you have found is, in fact, a magic talisman which has a special power. It is able to detect hidden doorways. That's cool. Ideal thing for an adventurer to bring into a dungeon. 
makes sense to find it on an adventurer. In future, it will warn you of the presence of secret doors, but you will have to watch for the warning signs. If we reach a reference which begins you find yourself, then you may look for a secret passage using the talisman's help. Now we add 20 to the reference we're on now. If a secret door is present, the new reference will make sense and the talisman will show you its secret. If the new reference makes no sense, there is no secret door. So if you're able to, you may add one luck point for finding the secret door. Kind of cool. So the new one is you find yourself. So I look forward to me missing entirely a paragraph beginning you find yourself. Uh, my luck returns to 10. Uh, we can either enter the secret door we've just found or return to the previous section to continue on our way. Well, it would be rude not to investigate the secret passage. Disrespectful to the dead, I think, not to investigate the secret passage. I mean, arguably, I disrespected the dead a little bit when I ate quite a lot of them. But still, you know, secret passage it is. You crouch low and squeeze through the narrow gap. As you pass through the doorway, a single glowstone flicks on to reveal the contents of the small chamber which you are now standing in. The room is completely bare, except for a large chest against one of the walls. Oh no, the easiest trap to get me with. The chest. I am absolute mimic bait. I really am. I will just investigate any chest. You step over and examine the chest. You push it, shove it and bash it, trying to break it open. Finally, a lucky push opens a lid. Inside, you find two mysterious objects, rather than lots of teeth, so that's good. The first is a large circular plate made of strong metal. It has a sharp spike which protrudes from the centre on one side and two leather straps on the other. On the same side as the straps is attached a leather pouch which could be useful for carrying things. The other object is a piece of rough coloured rock about the size of your forearm. That is a big rock. One end is wide and the other is much narrower. It is a dull green colour and glistens faintly in the light. But it appears very brittle. It might make a useful weapon gripped by the tapered end, but it would no doubt not last long in battle. You may take one of these items with you. Any metallic discs may be placed in the pouch on the plate if you choose this object. I'm intrigued by the rock, the club or staff. I feel like they've done a clever thing here where I can easily identify out of character one of these items, but the other one is more mysterious. When in doubt, I think choose the more mysterious item. I'm going to take the rock. You have chosen a crystal club. It is not valuable, but to your way of thinking, it is quite a beautiful trophy. However, it is brittle. If at some time in the future you wish to use it in a battle, turn to a specific reference to find out what happens. But you must remember the number of the reference you are on at the time you choose to use the club, so that you can return there afterwards. Now, leave the chamber and continue your journey. So, brittle club. I feel like the club is maybe going to be useful if I don't smash it over someone's head, but that's just my instinct. It's a nice image, the idea of this giant confused monster using some powerful magic artifact to kind of just smash open doors or what have you. That's, it seems really, really appropriate for the story that's being told. I like it a lot. You cannot see a thing. Oh yeah, we're back to this one. Okay. Your feet shuffle noisily through the straw which covers the floor as you grope around the walls for a way out. If this cavern is the lair of another creature, then you may well be walking straight towards it. But you hear no sounds other than your own. And eventually, you reach a hole in the rock, which is large enough for you to walk through and leads to a passageway. You continue slowly along the passage, still groping your way. But you stop 
when a blue light flicks on in front of you. The welcome hue of a glowstone makes you blink and turn away until your eyes have become accustomed to the light. When you are finally able to take in your surroundings, you find you are at a junction. You can either go east or west. Um, 50-50, we will go west. The passage continues west and turns sharply to the right. A few paces along the corridor, you reach a junction where you can go either west or north. Uh, well, as I said before, my strong belief is that north is always the way out, so we will go north. The passage runs straight ahead until you reach a junction where you may continue north or turn east, or you can return to the previous junction and turn west. Aha, we've entered what seems to be the maze portion of this particular game book. Uh, we will continue north. The passage twists and turns until it leads you into a wide cavern. You pause to survey the way ahead. There are no creatures to be seen, and all is still, except for a dull humming which is forming an almost unnoticeable background noise. The wall to the left is riddled with large holes like a huge honeycomb, and many of the holes are lit with a yellow glow. So, bees? Let's hope for giant bees, but fear giant wasps. I have a paralysing phobia of wasps. Absolutely awful. So, bees are surprisingly not that bad on. It is quite a specific phobia. In the centre of the cavern, a few steps off the path, is what seems to be a small pool of shimmering liquid. Do you want to pass through this chamber as quickly as possible? Do you want to investigate the light coming from the holes? Or do you want to have a look at the pool of shimmering liquid? I want to pass through this chamber as quickly as possible, thanks. You take the path carefully through the cavern, so as to avoid any danger. The path leads out through a narrow archway into a passage, which you follow east until you reach a junction where a side passage leads southwards. Not southwards. Nothing good happens in the south. Ask anyone from Yorkshire. You decide to choose the eastward passage, and you follow it to a sharp bend to the right. Doesn't quite make sense. Almost immediately after the bend, you find yourself at the foot of a staircase, and you climb the stairs carefully. Then a corridor leads straight ahead southwards until you reach a T-junction. But, hold on a second. Is it my imagination, or... Was it the phrase, you find yourself, that we were supposed to look out for when aiming for secret doors? So, let's have a look ahead. No, apparently not. So, east or west? Uh, we will go west. After a few paces, the passage begins to wind irregularly in a generally southwesterly direction. You follow it for some time, and then it turns south. You arrive at the top of a flight of stairs, but decide against going back down to the lower levels. There is another passage leading east here, and you decide to take this route. These sections are already starting to blur into one in my head. I have not been making a map. Almost certainly a foolish error, but that's how I roll. I like to improvise, what can I say? I also have very little ability to visualise spatially, so what with one thing and another, I am completely lost at this point. You follow the passage to the east, and you find yourself wandering down a long, straight passage. After some time, you arrive at a crossroads, and you must choose which way to turn. As you are considering your choice, you are startled when all the glowstones you are relying on to light your way go out simultaneously. You are now stranded in pitch blackness. Which way will you go? North, south, straight on. Uh, north. You stumble off awkwardly up the passage. The ground is rough underfoot and the passage is getting a little narrower, though the ceiling appears to be much higher up. There seems to be no way forward. Will you grope around the walls to see whether you can find a way of progressing or return to the crossroads? Let's have a grope. 
Nothing problematic about groping a wall. You find no clues as to how to get further along the passageway. Angry and frustrated, you stamp your foot on the ground and smack the rocky wall with your fist. This was not a wise thing to do. The rock overhead was loose, but delicately balanced. And now the roof and walls come crashing in on top of you. You have indeed come to a dead end in the dungeons of Zaradan Mar. So that's kind of cool because making the kind of like the pun about it being literally a dead end will help me remember if I was playing through on another occasion. Oh yeah, this one. Don't, don't mess with it. So um, I am going to invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule and we'll go back to the crossroads because this is far too early to call a halt. I'm having too much fun quite apart from anything else. So um, we can go east or south. Well, I'm going to go east. You cannot see a thing as you grope your way along the passage. Your anger begins to rise and is near to boiling when you reach a dead end ahead. Will you search the dead end for a possible way onwards? That worked well last time. Or return to the crossroads. So, um, am I going to search? I'll go back. I'll take the southern passage. You grope your way along the passage for several paces and find that it comes abruptly to a dead end. You may either search the walls for a sign of a way through or you may return to the crossroads and choose either the north or the east passage. So uh, let's have a look at these walls then. You search the rough rocky walls for some time but find nothing. Frustrated with your lack of progress you return to the crossroads. So we've got north or east to revisit. Presumably one of these I can add 20 to in order to find a secret door. Um, yeah. Aha, yes, okay. One of them says, you cannot see a thing. So I guess I can. that means I can go minus 20. This is very confusing. Okay, so I go to the eastern passage where I cannot see a thing. So as you stand against the wall, desperately searching for a way onwards, you almost overlook the strange things happening around your neck. For the pendant you are wearing is beginning to vibrate and is emitting a faint humming sound. When you suddenly become aware of the pendant, you look down to find out what is going on. When you move away from the end of the passage, the vibration fades. When you come closer, it increases in intensity. You cannot understand what is going on. An instant later, the jewel in the centre of the pendant begins to glow. I mean, I can understand what's going on. Suddenly, a jet of red lights burst from the jewel and lights up a metal rod which is protruding very slightly from the side wall. You grasp the rod and push it. Creaking sound is followed by a deep rumbling as the wall ahead begins to shift. The duel returns to its former dull blue appearance as the secret door opens. Gives us the rules for the secret door. So we will go through the secret door we have just discovered, escaping from a very, very frustrating set of circumstances. I feel like I've done something slightly wrong that I may have to go back and examine more closely at a later stage. You step through the door into another rocky passage, but this one is short and empty shelves are fixed to the walls on both sides. At the end of the passage is a wooden door. You step up to the door and shove it open. Hopefully someone here I can eat. All is silent as you enter. The room is large with a high ceiling and a musty smell permeates the air. There are four doors leading from the room, one in each wall. A long table stands in the middle of the room and on it is a short stick with a metal head lying next to some small spikes. A hammer and nails. A couple of planks of wood are resting against the table. This is evidently a workroom of some sort. In one corner of the room you find the products of the work carried out here. 
two tall and thin wooden boxes, almost as tall as you are, are leaning against the wall. They are standing next to a hole in the wall just above floor level, which is wide enough to fit one of the boxes through. You puzzle over this for some time. I think we found the local undertakers. So let's have a look inside the boxes, which I take to be coffins. You step over to the two boxes and shake one of them. Something soft and heavy bumps about inside. This arouses your curiosity and you search for a means of opening the box. None is apparent. In your frustration, you tip the box over and it crashes to the ground. Your attention focuses on the wider end as a splitting sound from within the box gets louder. Suddenly, a crack appears in the wood. And then another. Finally, the front of the box smashes apart. Your eyes widen as they catch sight of the hideous thing within. More hideous than we are, apparently. A human shape appears, or rather, something resembling a human corpse. But it is not dead, and its thin lips are slowly curling back to reveal sharp teeth and a forked tongue. In an instant, the creature suddenly sits bolt upright and turns its head towards you. Its eyes flick open. And there is a picture of the creature. Imagine Voldemort if he'd really let himself go, is how I would describe the creature. Could use a good haircut and a shave, quite honestly. It speaks to us. Bibble, 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 it goes. Bibble, 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 bibble. The creature's eyes fix onto your own. Maybe I should have said Bibble in a more portentous voice. Bibble! 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 Yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do that. The creature's eyes fix onto your own. They glow white, and you find that you cannot break from the gaze. When its eyes finally close, you feel strangely light-headed, as if in a trance you step away from the corner and head towards the door in the east wall. You open it, step through, it closes behind you. Only then do your thoughts return to normal. But you are far from normal. You have been cursed. I definitely should have done a more sinister bibble. Until you are finding someone who can remove the curse, your skill has been reduced by two. Ow. Stamina by five. Happily, our stamina was already reduced by five. Skill minus three, stamina minus five. Ouch. So we can, however, continue. It's so what you get for interfering with uh, the eternal rest of the monstrous, apparently. You have four doors to choose from. Do you want to go east, west, north or south? Uh, so I guess we will go north again. I'm not going to let this north thing go. You step over to the door in the north wall. But as you grasp the handle, a deep creaking sound comes from behind you. You swing round to see the door in the east wall suddenly opening. Glowstones in the passage beyond the door flick on to light up your way. You cannot resist this invitation, and you leave through the east door. So, kind of nice there. It's not really a choice. That can be irritating. But it's selling us on this idea that even though we've got mostly control, we're still a monster after all. So I don't mind it too much. Again, as long as it's an occasional thing. A passage leads east. A short distance ahead, you arrive at a rocky bridge across a deep chasm. Far below, you can hear the sloshing of a slow-moving river, and you step up to the edge of the bridge to get a better look. A disgusting smell is coming up from the river, and as this hits your nostrils, you stagger a few paces backwards. While I'm ever designing a secret magical lair, remind me not to put an open sewer through it. It feels like if you want to sell the magical layer on, you know, trade up or something, you're probably not going to um, have an easy time finding a buyer if there is a giant river 
of excrement as one of the conversation pieces in your lair? I mean, I know estate agents are traditionally quite skilled at selling people lemons, but that is a big ask. The bridge is the only way on, and it is narrow and wet from the moisture in the air. No doubt it is slippery too. Nevertheless, you have no choice. You hold your breath and step onto the bridge. Halfway across, you lose your footing on the slippery bridge. Oh no, test your luck. Nine, oh, just under, which reduces my luck to nine. You regain your footing and hurry across the bridge to the other side. Shaken by your near accident, you continue until you arrive at a side passage on the right. You don't like the look of the side passage, so you continue eastwards. You follow the passage eastwards, peering ahead as the glowstones flick on to light your way. Eventually, you arrive at two doors. You listen for clues as to what might be behind. No noise comes from behind the door in the north wall, but there are definite sounds coming from the door in the east. A heavy breathing is unmistakable, and it's interrupted by loud snorts. This sounds ominous. I'm going to try the north or the door in the east. Um, let's charge the door in the east. The door shudders under your charge, but does not open. Lose one stamina point. You try again, but this time the bolt is torn from the frame. The door flies open and you step into the room, ready for the creature inside. The room itself has a door in each wall. Scattered around one corner is an untidy pile of bones. In another corner is a half-eaten human carcass. Hello. Elevens is. Standing over the carcass, and evidently annoyed that its meal has been disturbed, is a bulky creature with a hairy face, razor-sharp teeth and wild eyes. As you enter, it turns to attack, and you must resolve your battle with the Manic Beast. So, uh, there's a picture of the Manic Beast. Yeah, it looks like a kind of caveman-y type thing. It's a pretty good illustration. I think it could look a bit angrier, maybe, but it's still basically really good. I like it. He looks very sinister. The Manic Beast has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 8, but there's a special rule. The Manic Beast is so called for its tremendous bursts of rage. Each time you inflict a wound on the Manic Beast, its anger will rise for the next attack round, and you must add 2 to the dice roll when rolling for its strength. If you wound it again during the next attack round, it will retain the bonus. But if you do not, its temper returns to normal and the bonus is lost. So, it's skill eight, uh, it's skill seven, but rising to skill nine after I first hit it. And the more I hit it, angrier it stays. Kind of like me, really. The more you hit me, yeah, the more cheesed off I become. So, uh, this could easily be the end of me, but let's try and think positively as I'm going to roll some dice. The Manic Beast reduced me to 11 stamina, but then I took it out with one big powerful blow, so that was awesome. Death blow coming through in a pinch. Actually a very nice little fight, it's another interesting wrinkle to the combat rules, and yeah, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. And one of the nice things about the death blow is, particularly when your back's against the wall, even if the opponent rolls really well and you think oh, I've got no chance of beating that you've still got in your back pocket that that chance of a critical hit so yeah that made it very very exciting in a way that would not have been possible with a traditional fight you may if you wish regain your strength by waiting for a few moments in the room before continuing you can pass the time by feasting on either of the dead creatures which looks the tastiest the manic beast or the human carcass 
I mean, the Manic Beast looks delicious, obviously. So uh, we'll eat him. The Manic Beast's meat is a, a little bitter for your liking, but it provides a satisfying meal. You may add four stamina points. Stamina now 15. I like that we're becoming some kind of weird connoisseur of humanoid flesh. That's a nice macabre little touch. You leave the room through a door in the east wall. The door opens into a dingy corridor, which is quite short and ends at a wooden door. When you listen at the door, you can hear conversation rising and falling in pitch, as if two or three creatures or humans were locked in a long discussion. This is your only way onwards. Do you want to try the door? I attempt to creep slowly into the room. Or do you attempt to surprise whatever's inside by charging into the room with your claws drawn? Well, I feel as though you need to embrace the monster within, so we'll go for smashing down the door. You fling open the door and rush into the room, snarling viciously, ready to take on the creatures you heard inside. But the scene within is not what you expect. The room is roughly circular, with doors in the north, south and west walls. Around the walls, in between the doors, are dark arches, a total of six, which are large enough for you to enter. But from your position, it is impossible to know how deep they are. The voices which you heard earlier have stopped, as if your entrance has surprised whoever, or whatever, was talking. There is no sign of any living creature in the room. You step into the centre, and you are startled when the door slams shut behind you. You must now decide what to do. Do you want to leave through one of the doors, or investigate the room further? Curiosity. Always curiosity. You glance from arch to arch, trying to decide whether to investigate them. The stillness is unnerving. Whatever happened to the voices you heard, as if in answer to your question, a sound drifts out from one of the alcoves. Bibble, 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 What about this? Is this better? Ah, yes, I can tell that you understand me now. Look, I can help you. Maybe you would like me to direct you to a tasty morsel. Two fat hobbits? Or shall I tell you about he who knows all your secrets? I speak, of course, of Zaradan Mar. Come, come, talk to me. You are stunned to silence by the voice speaking to you in your own tongue. It is inviting you towards one of the arches. You enter and speak to the being within, or are you suspicious of this strange voice? So, I am suspicious, but I'm going to go and talk to it anyway. The idea of having a conversation. It's exciting at this point. You are intrigued by the voice and find yourself strangely attracted to it. It guides you in towards one of the central arches in the east wall. Come closer so I may speak to you in private. No, not that arch. This one. That's right. Have no fear. I will tell you of the all-knowing one and tell you where to find some juicy hobbits. Just a little further. It is so long since I have enjoyed company. And I do so love to find out what happens in the outside world. You pass through the arch and look around. When your eyes have adjusted to the light, you can see that you are standing in a short tunnel, which ends several paces ahead in a dead end. There are no glowstones, but a glistening sheen covers the ceiling. At the end of the short passage is a shape which you can just make out. There appears to be a human sitting on the floor, leaning against the wall, tattered cowl over its head. A leather flagon stands at its feet. Come closer says the voice. My hearing is not good. Can I offer you a drink? So we can either approach the figure or we can approach another arch. Now there's an illustration which shows the figure and it shows the shimmering above looks distinctly like cobwebs 
and it shows a pair of eyes that are just visible at the top of the picture that look pretty darn sinister. So I think we'll be trying another arch. Thank you very much. You are suspicious of this mysterious figure. You back out of the arch and poke your head into the one next to it. This one is also dark. From somewhere in the darkness you can see a faint glittering, as if tiny raindrops are sparkling as they fall. You cautiously step in to investigate. You reach a pile of rubble lying on the ground. Stones are scattered about as if from a wall which has recently collapsed. You could easily cross the rubble and make for the twinkling lights. While you are considering what to do, a crash is followed by a shower of dust as a rock falls from the ceiling. Will you climb through regardless to investigate the glittering lights, or will you leave this alcove and try another? I mean, it feels like another trap, but one of them is not going to be a trap. I feel confident of that is the wrong word, but I feel in my bones that that's what the situation is. So let's have a look at the glittering lights. You climb through the hole in the wall and hold your breath as you step through the cloud of settling dust. The area is not much deeper, and when you reach its end, you discover what the glittering is. From high in the ceiling, a powdery trickle of elven dust is falling through the air. It drops gracefully down from the ceiling, glittering as it falls, but by the time it reaches the ground, it has disappeared. The magical dust is showering you as you stand looking up at it, though you can feel nothing. Elven dust is a magical powder, which is an essential ingredient in white elven magic. Though its effects may remain a mystery to you in the immediate future, you may well wonder about the significance of your find. Someone has been trying to wall the elven dust in. Why? Eventually, you decide to leave the recess and the chamber. You may leave by one of the three doors leading from the room. Which will you choose? Uh, we'll try and go north again. Hopefully that elven dust will become apparent. The door opens into a narrow passageway heading north and glowstones flick on to light your way. Thank goodness. Unlike other passageways you have been travelling along, this one has a cobbled floor. I've just realised I've completely forgotten to check whether or not anything starts with you find yourself. This is what happens when you try and talk and think at the same time. Unlike the other passageways you have been travelling along, this one has a cobbled floor. The cobblestones feel smooth and pleasant for your great feet to walk on, but you cannot ignore a feeling of apprehension, since the stones must have been laid by an organised and intelligent creature. You follow the passage for a short while until suddenly a loud clang sounds behind you and stops you dead in your tracks. You wheel round to find that a heavy portcullis has dropped behind you and sealed off the passage. Classic dungeon. You step back to test it, but the bars are much too strong for you to smash or even bend. You have no choice. You turn around and continue north up the corridor. A little further ahead, you reach a crossroads. The glowstones light up three ways onward, but you cannot see very far down the passages. Do you want to continue north? Go east or go west? Let's belabour this north thing still further. You follow the passage to the north until you reach a junction. To your left you can see that the passage soon reaches a dead end, but on a ledge in the end wall is a large orb of clear stone. To the right you can see that the passage disappears around a bend heading northwards. Let's go and investigate that there orb. I've played Castlevania. I know orbs are basically great. You approach the orb. Its perch is only slightly above your head and you reach up to take it in your hands. But as your fingers close around it, you suddenly leap away. 
although its appearance gives no warning, feels red hot to the touch. Lose one stamina point for the burns. Stamina now 14. Then a shape begins to form in the crystal. Moments later, a shriveled, death-like human face within the orb opens its eyes and glares at you. Its mouth begins to speak, and an eerie voice booms out along the corridor. Bibble, 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 bibble. What will you do now? Do you want to wait and see what the face in the orb does next, or leave it and take the other branch of the passage, or return to the crossroads? Let's, let's wait and see. The face swirls within the murky mist inside the orb, and you watch to see what will happen next. Gradually, the face reforms, but this time it looks larger than before. The sightless eyes begin to glow red like hot coals. Suddenly, a small fireball jumps from one eye straight towards you. You jump to avoid it, but it catches your leg below the knee and makes you howl in pain. The second eye releases its fireball, and this one hits you on the arm just above the elbow. Lose four stamina points for these injuries and leave quickly. So, now down to ten stamina. The passageway turns to the left and you follow it for some time, until you feel that perhaps this corridor has no end. Eventually, you see a particularly dark area straight ahead. Will you investigate or would you rather turn round and go back? Uh, let's investigate, I guess. You find yourself at a dead end. There is no way through. You will have to retrace your steps. Except will I, though? I don't think I will, because I think that there's a secret door here. There is a secret door here. As you are about to turn to leave the dead end, the pendant around your neck suddenly starts to vibrate. Remembering what happened last time this occurred, you hold the talisman out towards the rock face. A low humming comes from the charm, and its vibrating becomes more pronounced. Eventually, the blue stone set in the centre begins to glow, and a narrow beam of blue light illuminates a small catch in the rock. You release the catch and the rocky door rumbles aside to reveal a small room ahead in the rock. In the room is a long wooden box on a sturdy table. Around the room are a variety of objects, plates, candlesticks, many other artefacts arranged on shelves and smaller tables. Leaning against the central table are two skeletons. One looks human, but the other looks decidedly non-human, having the jaws of some sort of creature of chaos. A musty smell comes from the room it no doubt has not been visited for some time. So, there's a nice picture of the two somewhat bored-looking skeletons sat by the table with the box on. I'm going to have to investigate. They look as though they might have just sort of sat down and just given up and just gone, do you know what? I'm all right being here for the rest of my life. So, yeah, we will definitely venture inside. You step inside the room and look around. All sorts of carefully collected objects of value are in the room and you pick some of them up to look more closely at them. Then the door slides shut with a rumble and leaves you in complete blackness. Relying on the talisman, you shuffle across the area of the door and hold it against the wall. But this time there is no reaction, no vibration, no blue light. There is equally little reaction from the other walls soon dawns on you why the two long-dead skeletons were leaning against the table. There is no escape from the tomb you are now in. The next unwitting visitor will find three skeletons in the room.
So there we go, uh, Creature of Havoc. I understand that there is more to this book than simply the dungeon section. So I'm going to call it now. I will be offering some initial closing remarks for this portion of the adventure. And then I'm going to come back, hopefully in a couple of weeks, and do another episode on Creature of Havoc. The first double-length episode we've had since Caverns of the Snow Witch. And for almost identical reasons that I want to have a look at the second half of the book on Mike. So yes, enjoy in a few moments some thoughts about the opening portion of Creature of Havoc. And I'll be back with those in just a second. Tatty bye. So an ignominious end and an entirely predictable one, looking back. The clues were all there and I chose to ignore them. I doubt I'd have done the same thing if I was playing alone, but by the time I got to that point, I was starting to get a little weary and my brain was refusing to play ball. Uh, hopefully I can get through the dungeon section off mic and pick up a second episode in a fairly good spot. One thing that it's worth pointing out is that there is actually an issue with the magic pendant, whereby one of the sections with a secret door doesn't have the text marker associated with the pendant. Fans have been divided on the question of whether it's a genuine error or something deliberate on the part of Jackson. It's at a place where it would make sense to look for secret doors, and that could hint maybe at intent. The flip side is the likelihood of editors deciding to change phrasing because they feel it reads better or because they haven't made an edit in a while and they're feeling a bit insecure. Later editions of the book by Wizard do fix the issue which certainly suggests it wasn't deliberate. I've actually marked up my copy now so I don't miss it again. Notably, simply asking the player if they have the right item would have made it vanishingly less likely for a near game-breaking error of this kind to have been made. There are multiple possible locations for secret doors in the game, and making them detectable only by specific language in the text, I think, is asking for trouble. Weighed against that is the fact that discovering the secret doors does feel kind of brilliant. Having to do the work of reading the text attentively gives a strong sense of satisfaction when you've actually spotted something. I've said I generally prefer to treat the player like they're capable of making decisions for themselves, but literal secret doors they do make a compelling case for keeping a sense of mystery and hiding even the fact of their existence. Now alongside that somewhat punishing, intentionally or otherwise, implementation of secret doors is some great design with the traps. There's lots of contextual clues to help you spot danger, and they make use of both the text and the art. The deadly secret door that finished me off has art that is positively screaming keep out. The two skeletons in their chairs look utterly, utterly depressed. Similarly, the trap with the horrible spider monster in the ceiling is telegraphed in both prose and in the art, while still managing to be genuinely tempting. I think that's great. I'm focusing on the specifics before making general points, because I think these both serve as examples which illustrate the strengths and weaknesses of the functional side of the design. This opening section is, for better and for worse, a traditional fighting fantasy dungeon. There's formal innovations, we'll get onto those, but the core experience is a maze of similar corridors punctuated by clever set pieces. To really grasp the layout of the dungeon, you're going to need to map it. 
the text isn't going to much trouble to distinguish most areas, although there are some memorable images throughout. That is a deliberate choice, I think. By doing this, Jackson creates an intentionally hostile environment that evokes old-school dungeon crawls. This is a book which has a much darker tone, and that sense of being lost and confused is part of that. Of course, despite being, on some level, a resolutely traditional dungeon, the actual experience does not feel like that at all. What Jackson has done is that he's kept the tropes the same, and then inverted them. By changing the protagonist from an anodyne sword-wielder into a near-mindless beast suddenly makes all the clichés feel new again, and I love it. Opening in a dungeon, rather than putting the dungeon at the end, that's not wholly original. Caverns of the Snow Witch does much the same thing. However, Creature of Havoc does it with a clear intent to deliberately subvert the usual RPG structures. That brings us to the spiny, scaly, constantly hungry elephant in the room, the titular creature which you play. This is undoubtedly the star attraction of the book, and it's handled beautifully. The care and attention shown to disorientating the player is impeccable. There's the obvious stuff, the whole not knowing what coins are, for example, but there's also the genius way that the text emphasises your mental isolation through rendering the language as gibberish, although there's clearly a way of decoding it somewhere in the text. It has the look of a code, not actual language. Then there's taking away your agency, the main selling point of adventure game books. That's a bold move, a seriously bold move. What I love is that there's still choices shown, you just can't make them. It emphasises that someone else, someone who isn't you, could have acted with agency in this situation. Making it a d6 roll, rather than just funneling you from one paragraph to the next, also keeps the early game interesting if you're going to do repeated playthroughs. The sense of relief that comes with regaining control is palpable, and yet there's still so much that you've lost. The first encounter where you accidentally murder a dwarf is superb, quite beyond the fact you've lost control because it tells you so much. If you know your fantasy clichés, you know that dwarves are traditionally good aligned in role-playing games. With one word, Jackson lets you know that the character is on some level innocent. That's very high-level writing skills, using a single word to convey so much information about it. Then it goes a step further by telling you that hobbits are frankly delicious. There's another fascinating use of language. It's not halfling, that slightly disreputable version of the Tolkien folk. It's hobbit. You might as well be eating Sam Gamgee, you maniac. There are mysteries here I'm so looking forward to unravelling. There's a lot of detail in the opening, which I didn't read aloud, about evil witches teaching the art of flesh shaping to, to Xander and Mar. There's rumours of war, a flying ship, something fanciful even by the standards of fighting fantasy. There's background that ties into earlier books. And it is just clear not all of it can be true. Your character was clearly someone or something else before you became a monster, and it seeds all sorts of possible options. It makes me want to play on, and of course that's exactly what I'm going to do. It makes good sense not to mess too much with the system in this instance. It's a rare bit of mechanical restraint from Jackson, who usually loves to mess with the core mechanics. I've already rhapsodised about how the death blow mechanic ties into the core fantasy, without detracting from the sense of familiarity that comes from keeping it simple. It's also the case that a lot of the fights are deliberately easy, making positive use of one of the system's biggest issues. 
That issue is simply that the range of possible attribute scores is too large to effectively balance a gamebook. Here, Jackson pushes the enemy skill scores down, doubtless aware that a lot of people, myself included, deliberately inflate their stats because playing with a skill 7 character is almost always a miserable time. He's making the fight easy, and when they are more challenging, it's often because there's more weaker opponents fighting at the same time. It all plays into the idea of a huge, powerful monster that can crush most opponents. And this is not the first time Jackson has engaged with the issues that the system has head-on. Citadel of Chaos was meticulously designed from the ground up to be beatable with minimum stats albeit you have to make absolutely the right decisions at all times. Anyone can write a game system that basically works. It's really not hard. Taking a system and using it to tell stories with the mechanics themselves, that is really hard. It's something I'm trying to do with Saturday Morning Superstars, really trying to write it so that the mechanics push a light tone. There's no damage system in that game because serious injuries are such a rarity in the source material. Children's adventure cartoons of the 80s, not a lot of people getting stabbed. Conversely, my stupid retro hack of D&D, Dungeon and Daggers, is absurdly arbitrary and absurdly deadly because it's trying to boil the essence of D&D down to the smallest possible number of D6 rolls and capture how the game felt when I played it back in the early 90s. Creature of Havoc tells a story that works on every level, thematically, mechanically, and in terms of interrogating fantasy gaming itself. And I'm only halfway through. I hope very much you'll join me for the second half. If you want to know which section to mark up in your own copy, then I'll reveal it at the end of the podcast after the outro music. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, maybe a little bit more depending on how coursework goes, with the next instalment of this two-parter. In the meantime, you can get in contact with me by emailing hjdoomedretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. labeled paragraph is 213. 213. You should add 20 to that paragraph.